morning, everyone. My name is Rick, and um, I'm honored to be here today. I retired pastor with Pastor Tascadero for many years. I know Brandon. I met him when he was at ABC on staff, and then, of course, we serve as police chaplains together, and so we become really good friends. Um, I'm honored to be here. The Bible says in uh, Paul in, in Acts 20, uh, the, um, uh, uh, Luke writes of Paul, Paul is at Ephesus, um, and he's talking to the elders at Ephesus before he leaves life and ministry. And he says to them in verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourself and the whole flock of God, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Um, that's the mandate of a pastor, to shepherd the flock of God. It's a huge mandate. The uh, Bible says in, um, in uh, the book of First uh, Peter uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, it talks about the accountability that pastors will have before God uh, at the end of time for, you know, shepherding the church. And part of shepherding, of course, is feeding the people and um, pastors away, and so someone needed to come and, and feed the flock, and I have that privilege, and I feel very honored to do that because it's, um, you know, to trust someone else in your pulpit is a big deal, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, I am not Pastor Brandon. Um, I may not be as animated as he is. I'll probably stick closer to my notes than he does. Um, I'm not, you know, I kind of figure that pastors like menu items, like he's steak and I'm pasta, so I hope you like pasta. I mean, I know you're used to steak, steak every week. I like it, I have steak every week. I'm a ribeye guy. Uh, you like steak, but this is pasta. So just remember that if we're going through this service and you're thinking like, he doesn't do it like Pastor Brandon, just think pasta. Okay, I'm, uh, I want to uh, tell you a little story, then, then we'll pray and we'll get into the word. My, my text has already been read, so we'll get right to the the message. A little Timmy, little Timmy was in the backyard filling in a big hole with dirt, and his neighbor peered over the fence, and interested in what the boy was doing, he asked him, he said, what are you, what are you, what are you doing there, Timmy? And Timmy said, my, my goldfish died, and I've just buried him. The neighbor felt really saddened by that news, but also a little concerned. I'm sorry about that, he said, but isn't that an awfully big hole for a goldfish? Patting down the last shovel of dirt, Timmy looked up at his neighbor and said, I, I guess so, but that's because he's in your cat. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please hear our hearts this morning as we express them to you? We need you because in all likelihood, every one of us experienced death in some part of our lives this week. Something died, Lord around us or within us, maybe a dream or a hope, maybe our confidence in someone else, maybe our ability to trust you, maybe our willingness to obey you. Something died. We killed it. The world devoured it. Satan put it to death. In any case, we lost something. And we need you to attend the burial because we know that you have the power to keep things in the grave, disobedience, unforgiveness, pride, lust, selfishness, things that have died and need to stay there. You also have the power to raise things from the grave that have also died, hope, faith, peace, joy, love, things that need to live again. Look over heaven's fence into the backyard of our lives. Help us bury what needs to be buried and resurrect again that which you mean to live on. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. So you've read my, my text has been read, the parable of the sower. It's not only in the book of Luke, it's in the other Gospels as well. 
Her name was Doris. She lived across the street from the church I pastored in Tascadero. I pastored there for 29 years. She lived across the street, not the whole time, but for a number of years. She was 72. I've been told it's not, the polite, not polite to ask a lady her age, but I did. She was 72. Now, Doris had been in that house for more than five years when this story that I'm going to tell you took place. And over time, over the time that she was in that house, my conversations with her were, had been brief and infrequent. Didn't happen very often, and when they did happen, they were very short. I don't ever remember inviting her or her husband to church or having a conversation with her that involved the gospel, the message of God regarding our sin and Christ saving us from it. In those ways, I had obviously not been a very good neighbor because Jesus said that I should love my neighbor as myself, which would include loving them enough to talk to them about the gospel, about God and his truth, and I don't ever remember doing that. Now, to be honest, part of my reluctance to engage Doris more often than conversation or about spiritual matters was because I had her figured for a complainer. She was, it seems, always and forever calling the church office and kicking, kvetching, sounding off about something. The Spanish church, we, we had a Spanish church uh, use our facility as well uh, midweek and on Saturday nights. The Spanish church was playing their music too loud on Saturday night. The preschool parents were driving out of the entrance of the parking lot onto Ardilla Avenue. The weeds on our hillside across from her house needed to be mowed. The lights on the church sign were bothering her. The lights on our parking lot were too bright and shone right into her bedroom window. That last complaint was the big one. When we repaired the lights on our poles several years before this, she grumbled that they were too bright, so we adjusted, we adjusted them one time, two times, three times, four. Then she complained that they were pointed too much toward her house, so we adjusted them away from her house. Then she complained that they stayed on too late, so we changed the timer. And she wasn't just calling us. She was calling the city 30, 40, 50 times a month to try to get them to get us to do what she wanted. We even went so far as to buy all new lights and have them installed, and even after that, she fretted that they were still a nuisance to her. Now, unfortunately for Kirkley Peterson, my wonderful children's pastor and facilities director who's still on staff at the church, he was the one who got the vast majority of the calls from the city and from her, and it was fair to say that she exasperated him over many months, got on his nerves, and sometimes not in a very nice way. At one point, after a very tense exchange between them, I wrote her a really nice letter. I was good at that. A really nice letter that I hoped would make amends for any offense given and at the same time say amen to the whole matter. Never got a response from her. Rarely saw her much around after that. One Saturday morning, it was actually August 4, 2012, I came down to my men's prayer group. And I brought with me some gardening tools so after prayer I could go out to that hillside that's across from her house. I could clean it up, the one she was complaining about. So prayer's over. I grab my weed whacker. I grab my clippers. I head out by the church sign. I leave Chuck Seitz and Mike Dickey, two men in my church, wonderful men, men who were part of the prayer group. I leave them talking in the parking lot across from her house. When I get out to the road, I see Doris coming out of her house, walking her dog, Scooter, Scotty, Shorty, something like that. She looked very frail, which reminded me that I'd heard that her husband had died a couple of months before from cancer and that she recently had been diagnosed with cancer herself and was undergoing treatment. 
Now, she used to walk her dog all the way up Ardillo Road, all the way up to San Anselmo, which is probably a good three-quarters of the mile. But on this day, I noticed she does not go more than 30 yards before she stops, turns around, and heads back. She looks unsteady on her feet. In fact, she stops and leans against an oak tree on the side of the road. It's at this point that I, that I call her name. I say, hello. She, she says, hello back. I cross the street. After about three minutes' worth of conversation, she says she feels weak and needs to sit down. So I, I walk her over to her driveway. I walk her down her driveway. I set her on a, concrete, on a concrete berm right next to her garage. I think she's going to be fine. But after about 30 seconds, there her eyes roll back in her head. And she starts to fall backward. I reach for her. She slides off into my arms. I lay her on the ground. It looks like she stopped breathing. She's not responding to my voice. I begin yelling for help. Thank God Mike and Chuck were still in the parking lot. They come running over. I say, call 911. Doris has collapsed. Fire department comes. The ambulance comes. Doris seems to be stirring a little. They put her on the gurney, load her in the ambulance. The fireman inadvertently put my phone and keys on the gurney with her. And as I reach in, before they shut the doors, as I reach in to get my phone and keys back, I see Doris catch a glimpse of her face. She has oxygen on. Her eyes are closed. She's not moving. I go back across the street, watch the ambulance drive away, and all I can think is Doris is going to die. And I never did talk to her about the gospel. I never sowed any seed into her life. It's called the parable of the sower. And there are three components to the story. The first, of course, is the sower whom Jesus represents to be himself. He says in Matthew 13, 37, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. That phrase is used 88 times in the New Testament. It's a reference to Christ's divinity and humanity. Jesus, as you know, had two natures, fully God, fully man. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Jesus is the sower. Many translations use the word farmer. Most people in Jesus' day lived lived off the land or from it. So the whole idea of a farmer sowing seed into the ground was very natural to those who were listening to him speak, just as it's natural to us because of where we live. We know that sowers sow. We know that farmers farm. They prepare the ground for. They plant and harvest the seed, and they leave its irrigation mostly and its germination fully to God. We have our part. We till the soil, we plant the seed, we harvest, and on occasion we irrigate. When we don't, God does. But the germination of the seed, that's all God's work. So we have our part. We work in cooperation with God on part of it, and he does his part. A second component of the story is the seed itself. Jesus tells the story as a parable. The word parable means a throwing beside, a comparison. A parable compares one thing to another. And Jesus makes a comparison when he explains the parable later on. But at first, he speaks only of seed in general. And he suggests that the seed that is sown is good seed, meaning valuable, because it produces a crop. And he says that the sower sows the seed. The word sow literally means to scatter. The farmers had bags over their head, over their shoulders. And they would take the seed and just throw it out in front of them and throw it beside them and throw it behind them. The more seeds they sowed, the more they would germinate to life, the larger the harvest it would produce. The last component of the story, of course, is the soil or soils under which the seed falls. There's hard-packed soil. There's soil of the sort which is outside the front door of my house, soil full of rocks. 
their soil infested with weeds and their soil that's full of nutrients free from the hindrances of rocks or weeds. Those are the components of the story, and the story itself is simple. The, the good farmer throws out good seed and gets mixed results. Good farmer, good seed, mixed results. Some seed never germinates at all. Some seed shows signs of life but gets no nourishment and dies off quickly. Other seed flourishes early on, but over time dies off without producing anything. And some seed takes root and gets nourished and flowers into a wonderful harvest. Very practical story, makes lots of sense, but it's when Jesus interprets the story for his followers that its real lessons come to life. The sower, again, is Jesus, both in the original story and in the explanation of it, beginning in verse 13. But he is not the only one. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on the book of Mark, said, Jesus points to himself, points to himself, points to himself as the sower by a legitimate extension of the figure, we are justified in saying that the sower is not only Jesus, but anyone, minister, missionary, evangelist, any witness bearer who truly proclaims the message of the gospel. The sower is anyone who truly proclaims the message of the gospel. So as Jesus explains the parable, he's saying that the sower is himself and anyone else who sows seed, anyone else. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. By way of explanation, Jesus' next point is that the seed that is being sown is, in effect, the Word of God. That's why he calls it good seed, Matthew 13, 37. When he says Word of God, he's not speaking here. He's not speaking here in the broad sense of the Word of God, but rather in the narrow sense of the gospel. The message of God's atoning love for the sins of mankind and the death and the life, death, and resurrection of his Son. That is the seed that's to be sown, the gospel. And again, it's good seed, valuable, powerful. The apostle Paul says, I'm not Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. I'm not ashamed. Have you ever been ashamed of something? When I was a kid, <laughs> we had this 1957 Volvo PV444, the ugliest car you've ever seen in your whole life. It was, the, it was the 50s answer to the later gremlin look. I mean, it was ugly. It was terrible. And ours was an old beat-up one. Uh, Rust had breakfast, lunch, and dinner on the bumpers. The paint was peeling off. The, 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 the driver's side door wouldn't stay shut. So my dad actually tied a rope from the armrest of the, of the passenger door across our laps to his door to keep it shut. I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed and ashamed whenever he, you know, he'd take me someplace in that car. I know what it feels like to be ashamed, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I have been the recipient of its transformative power, and so have you. I love what Presbyterian minister and author Frederick Buechner writes in his book, Telling the Truth, the Gospel is Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. He says the gospel is bad news before it's good news. It's the news that man is a sinner, to use the old word, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart. And, and Jeremiah, that's what Jeremiah 10, 9 says. The heart of man is deceitful beyond me all measure and desperately wicked. People don't like to hear that, but that's what God's word says. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. It's the news that man is a sinner, to use the old word, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror, all in the lather, meaning when he's shaving, 
What he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob, sinner. That's the tragedy. But it's also the news that he is loved anyway. <laughs> Cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. That's the comedy. And here the word comedy means a story with a happy ending. And yet forgiven when the very mark and substance of his sin and of his slobbery is that he keeps turning down the love and forgiveness because he either doesn't believe them or doesn't want them or just doesn't give a damn. In answer, the news of the gospel is that extraordinary things happen. Zacchaeus climbs up a sycamore tree as a crook and climbs down as a saint. Paul sets out a hatchet man for the Pharisees and comes back a fool for Christ. It's impossible for anybody to leave behind the darkness of the world he carries on his back like a snail, but for God, all things are possible. That is the fairy tale. Altogether, they are the truth. Amen. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. It is trage tragedy and comedy and fairy tale. We are, as Pastor Tim Keller likes to say, more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. At the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Somebody say amen, at least to the last part. That's the gospel. That's the seed the sower sows. And it's powerful. It's life-transforming. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said, Never lose heart in the power of the gospel. Do not believe that there exists any man, any person, much less any race of men for whom the gospel is not fitted. In other words, the gospel can change anyone. Don't think that those you love or pray for are beyond the power of the gospel. I had a lady in my church for years. Her name was Dovey Holloway. And we had four sections, one, two, three, four. And she used to sit like four rows back on, on it would be, of course, on the left-hand side, but to my right. Every Sunday for years, I came to the church in 87, and, you know, see one of the senior saints in the church, real blessing to me as a young pastor, very encouraged, encouraging. She used to sit there. Her husband never came, and she had been in that church. She probably had been in that church since the, the, church, the church facility was built in 68, or they bought the property in 68. The church was built in 76, so it, but it, it existed other places in Tascadero since 1942. I think she came to the church like in the late 50s. She'd been in that church for years. Her husband never came. Every Sunday, she'd ask me to pray for her husband's salvation. Every Sunday, every service. Husband's salvation, husband's salvation, husband's salvation. One Sunday morning, she came in, sat down. About halfway through a service, her husband came walking in. Sat down right next to her. I think she almost, she almost had a heart attack on the. But you know, she'd been praying. And she asked other people to pray for all those years. At the end of the service, we gave an invitation. He came down, knelt at the altar, gave his life to Christ. Two months later, he, he left this world. Don't ever think that there's anyone that you know is beyond the power of the gospel. Christ can and will change anyone. Don't give up hope. Lastly, Jesus speaks of the soil, people's hearts. He talks about hard hearts, those who never respond to the gospel at all, in part because Satan steals, S-T-E-E-L-S, steals them against the gospel, or he steals, S-T-E-A-L-S, he steals it from them. And then he discusses 
what we'll call impulsive hearts, people whose response to that is that of emotion and not will. They get swept up in the euphoria of Jesus teaching or truth, but when they find out there's a price to follow him, they, they turn away. You know, it's, and I'm sure Pastor Brent, Brent, uh, Brandon mentioned this probably in the, in the, on Easter Sunday or the Sunday before that. It's very possible, talking about impulsive hearts, it's very possible that many of the same people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passion Week with cries of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, stood in the crowd before Pontius Pilate at the end of the week and shouted, crucify him! Surely, surely there were some who were both there at the beginning and the end with two different messages for Jesus. Then he speaks of those people whose hearts are preoccupied. They start out well, they're sincere in wanting to follow Christ, but then they lose focus, then they lose faith, and then they lose out. There's a man in the Bible like that, a man named Demas. He's mentioned three times. He was a, a, a partner in ministry with the Apostle Paul, and the first two times Paul mentions him are very affirming, very, very favorable. He, you could tell that Paul loved Demas, that Demas made great sacrifices for the ministry, the last time we hear Demas' name is in chapter is in, Tim, in second, the book of Second Timothy, and Paul says this: Demas has abandoned me, and he wasn't saying just me. He's abandoned the gospel. He's abandoned the mission. He fell in love with this present world, and has gone back to the city of Thessalonica. He says. Finally, there is, for lack of a better term, good soil people. People who hear the word, take it in, and allow it to give birth to new and eternal life. One sower, one seed, four soils. Now, let me go back to something I said earlier. As Jesus explains the parable, he is saying that the sower is himself and anyone else who sows the seed. It's interesting to me that this is called the parable of the, of the sower, not the parable of the seeds, not the parable of the soils, the parable of the sower. And the reason for that is that without the sowers, it makes no difference whether or not there is seed. It makes no difference whether or not the seed is good or bad. It makes no difference how many types of soil there are or, how, or whether the soil is good or bad. It makes no difference. The key to the whole story are the sowers. If they don't sow, nothing happens. We need to sow There'll always be soil awaiting us out there, and the seed will always do its work, but it has to be scattered. I love what Pastor Vance Havner said, an old Baptist pastor who's been gone from this world many years. If you want to jumpstart your relationship with Jesus, you want some spiritual inspiration or spiritual intimidation, then read yourself some Vance Havner. He said, it's not our business to make the message acceptable, but to make it available we are not to see that they like it, but that they get it. Who likes to be told you're a sinner in need of a Savior? <laughs> Nobody I've ever met. The old nature rebels against that. I'm a good person. You may be. You're probably a better person than I am. You're still a sinner in need of a Savior. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I grew up in the 60s. Graduated high school in 1970. I know that's a really, really long time ago. I, I marry people. I do that a lot. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of weddings. I have one this afternoon. I had two yesterday all the time. I These fabulous young couples. When I first started marrying people a long time ago, uh, the couples were young, 18, 19, 20. They've been together 
six months a year. Now, I mean, the couple I married, uh, let me see, yesterday, the second couple I married yesterday, he was 31, she was 29. So most of them are late 20s, you know, early 30s, mid-30s. Sometimes they have kids, they have a career, they, sometimes they bought a house already. And I'll look at these people and I think, man, I have a sweatshirt from college older than you guys. You're young, you know. But in, again, I graduated high school in 1970. In 1970, the Doobie Brothers sang, Jesus is just all right with me. I want to stop for a second. Now, because of the longevity of my life, that's a, a, a nice way of saying because I'm so old, I have, on, I have on occasion when I speak used references or illustrations to go right over the top of my, of my listener's head, right? Because I'll mention a, a TV commercial or a TV program or a song that's from way before their time, and they'll go like a blank stares, right? And that, that's my fault. I need to consider my audience when I speak, both the group, but the groups I'm going to mention in, in just a moment are certainly familiar to all of the millennials in the group, my generation, but all the millennials in the group, but also probably to Gen Z and Gen Alpha after you. Gen Alpha is the latest generation because the music and songs of the groups I'm going to mention are still being played today, and they've been covered by other famous groups. So again, in 1970, the Doobie Brothers sang, Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right with me. I don't care what they may say. I don't care what they may do. Jesus is just all right. Oh, yeah. He took me by the hand. He led me far from this land. Jesus, he's my friend. 1970, Norman Greenbaum sang, Spirit in the Sky. When I die and they lay me to rest, going to go to the place that's the best. When they lay me down to die, going to up the spirit in the sky. Prepare yourself. You know it's a must you got to have a friend in Jesus so that when you die, he's going to recommend you to the spirit in the sky. In 1970, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young sang Woodstock. I'm going down to Yasger's farm, going to join a rock and roll band. Got to get back to the land, set my soul free. We are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. What garden were they talking about? They're talking about the Garden of Eden. You know why? Because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 1.11 that God has said eternity in the hearts of people. They can't escape that. As much as they want to try to cover up this spiritual tug that's inside of them, they can't escape that. I don't care how much money they have. I don't care what stuff they do. They can't escape that. God has said eternity in their heart. When they sang, when they wrote those lyrics, they thought they just wrote those lyrics. No, that was that part of them. Said we, there's, there's an there's a eternal part of us. we got to get back to, that, to the beginning point, that garden when, when we were right with God. It's interesting. Ed Sheeran is being sued currently for allegedly stealing the lyrics from Marvin Gaye's song, Let's Get It On, as the basis for his song, Thinking Out Loud. That's nothing. In 1965, the birds stole half the, book of, or half the chapter of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 to write their song, turn, turn, turn. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There's a reason, season, turn, turn, turn. A time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. My point is that back then, in the late 60s, early 70s, the Jesus movement was going on. And in secular culture, as reflected in some secular music, there seemed to be, at least in my mind, lots of good soil. People seem much more intrigued by, interested in, are open to Jesus, open to the gospel. Now, there are secular groups today that do write and play songs that have a religious or spiritual theme and maybe hint at Jesus. U2 comes to mind. They have a lot of those kinds of songs. But more often than not, our culture 
get songs like Modern Jesus by the rock group Portugal the Man, who sing, come on in, take a seat next to me. You know we've got, we've got what you need. We may be liars preaching to choirs, but we can, we can sell your dreams. You don't need sympathy. They got a pill for everything. Just take that dark cloud, wring it out, wash it down. But don't pray for us. We don't need no modern Jesus to roll with us. The only rule we need is never giving up. The only faith we have is faith in us. Again, as Vance Havner said, it's not our business to make the message acceptable, but to make it available. We are not to see that they like it, but that they get it. Tim Keller is now the retired former pastor of a very large and fruitful church in New York City. And I think their members did a great job of sowing seeds. On one occasion, he said, if you, if you, if you and your church were to disappear off the face of the earth tomorrow, would anybody in the unbelieving community around you notice you were gone? And if they did notice, would they say, man, we're really glad they're gone? Or would they say, we're really going to miss them? Think about that in context of, be, of you being sowers of the gospel. If you were to disappear from the life of your friends, your acquaintances, your coworkers, your neighbors, would they say, man, I'm glad they're gone? Or would they say, man, I'm really going to miss them? Because there's something about them. I want to finish the story I started. Doris died on August 4th, 2012. Or at least that's what I thought because I did not see or hear any activity around her house on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday. And I was almost afraid to ask anyone who would know what happened since once the ambulance took her away. But on Wednesday, I went to her house, I knocked on the door, and I waited. A minute went by, two, three, nothing. My worst fears were coming to pass. Doris had died, and I'd never planted any gospel seed in her life. Never invited her to church. She lived across the street, for goodness sake. I went by her house every day, saw her in her yard, never invited her to church. And we had some great ministry at the church, great dramas, speakers, all sorts of events, Easter events. Also, we never invited her to church. I went back down the stairs, back toward my car, and then I heard a voice behind me. Hello? I turned around, looked up, and there was Doris standing in her doorway. I can tell you I was never more happy to see someone alive in my life. She invited me into her house, and I spent the next 45 minutes finding out all about Doris, her six-year marriage to her husband who died the previous year, her, her years working for Wells Fargo in upper management, and then going back to school, becoming a nurse, her love for reading and for camping, above all, that she was, a, she, she was a believer. Now, that's not quite how she said it. It was more like, I guess you'd call me a Protestant, but I took that. Okay, she's a Protestant, okay. It told me that, that some seed had been sown in her heart and was still being germinated. She talked, I listened, and when it was over, I asked if I could pray for her. She said, yes. And I did pray. I, I, I prayed for the presence of God around her. I prayed for the person of Christ in her. I prayed for the ministry of the Spirit to her. And I continued to pray after that day. Seven months after Doris died and came back to life, she moved away to Northern California to live with her daughter. And I don't know if she's still alive there or by the grace of God, if she's alive in the presence of God in eternity. What I do know I'm so grateful that God gave me another chance to sow some seed in Doris's life. I also know that every time I drive by her house, which is every day, I mean, 
we live above the church. Our house is above the church. You go down Vega Avenue and see your house on Ardilla. It's right across from the church. I also know that every time I drive by her house, which is every day, I'm reminded of that story. And I'm convicted and challenged by the Holy Spirit to go out and sow more seed to everyone everywhere. I want the gentleman to begin passing out the communion elements, please. You and I are the sowers. That's what we are. That's what we're supposed to do. Who's your Doris? Who's your Doris? Neighbor, friend, coworker, some kid at school. Who's your Doris? Maybe, maybe like Doris, they're off-putting, right? I thought she was like a pain in the neck because of all of her, right? Who's your Doris? Who's someone that you need to sow some seed into their life? Some people go, like, well, I'm not sure how. You know, I've never learned the you know, Romans Road or the four spiritual laws or never been through evangelism explosion. All those things are good. It's great to have a grasp of the Scripture and know where to begin and how to take people through the gospel. But that's not the only way to sow seed. You pray for one, someone you sow seed. You share them some kind of, you show them grace in some way or another. You, you sow seed. Who's your Doris? Who has God prompted you to share his grace, his love with? Ask God if he won't encourage you and enable you. Remember, don't worry about the soil. The Holy Spirit's the one that tills the soil. Remember? Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone. You're not on your own. I'm going to send you a comforter, another one like myself, who's going to be with you and in you, and he is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will till the soil. You don't worry. About, don't like, oh, well, that's hard soil. I better not put any seed there. I'm wasting my seed. No, you just sow the seed. Don't worry about the soil. That's the Spirit's job, to till the soil and allow the seed to penetrate it and hopefully germinate to new life, eternal life. You just sow, just sow, just sow. Let's pray. Father, um, as a little boy, I had no exposure, none, zip, zilch, no exposure to Christianity. Single parent home, alcoholic father, three moms growing up. That was a <laughs> challenge. I remember watching Billy Graham Crusades on a black and white TV in the 60s. That was my first hearing of the gospel. I didn't really understand what was going on, but I knew there was something to this. But it wasn't until after high school, I was 18 years of age, I started a new job at a drugstore as a stock boy. And I don't remember the young man's last name, but his, his first name was Scott. Man, he loved Jesus. He, he worked with me for two weeks before he left, training me how to do his job. And every day, he would talk to me about Jesus. Every day, he talked to me about the love of God. Every day, he talked to me about eternal life. So that seed, every day. He was the first, really, the first. And then there were others came along and sowed more seed, and people would water seed that others have sowed in my life. And then it germinated. In September of 1970, it germinated. It sprouted. It touched your heart. Well, I think this is a great congregation. I know Pastor Brandon is really excited. I talked to him before Easter. I talked to him after Easter. 
he's excited about what you're doing in the body, he's in the group, in this group of people. And I know you have great plans, and, and, and you, you, our idea of great and your idea of great are sometimes two, <laughs> two different ideas, but you do. You have great plans for this body, and you're at work here, obviously. And I just pray you would inspire and encourage. I know they have other issues to deal with, Lord. We have, you know, fathers and mothers and kids, and we have other issues, real-life issues. But this is, our, this is our Christ life. This is part of, our, of what we do because we love you and we love people. And, you know, we sow seed. So I just pray you'd encourage people, empower people, give them opportunity. And again, tell them not to worry about the extraneous stuff. Don't worry about the soil. Don't worry about the seed. We know the seed's good. Don't worry about the soil. Just sow. Just sow. Just sow. May there be a great harvest in the lives of the people in this and the surrounding communities because this congregation has taken to heart the challenge and encouragement of sowing the gospel seed.